Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Welcome to a special conversation that we are going to be convening today. I'm convened by Freedom Road in partnership with Evangelicals for Justice, The Voices Project, Global Immersion Project, and Evangelicals for Social Action. Now, before we begin, I have been taught that no matter what, we have to also give an acknowledgement. I have to give an acknowledgement of the First Nations on the land where I'm standing right now. So the land where I am right now is Washington, D.C., and this land is the land of the Anacostian peoples. Over time, also the Piscataway and the Pamunkey peoples. We acknowledge that you were here thousands of years before anyone discovered this land and that you cultivated this land and you rode the rivers long before they turned the streams into Uh, dumping grounds for oils and toxins. We thank you for stewarding this land. We thank you for the way that you cared for it and dedicated your lives to serving it, protecting it. We bless your elders, your past, present, and emerging. Over the past few years, we've seen evangelicals who previously said character counts change their minds in the Trump era, saying that unethical personal behavior can be okay if God is using the leader for their greatest good. In addition, we've witnessed the silence of white evangelicals around policies spoken about directly through biblical teaching. Over the next hour, we will aim to break evangelical silence. We will go there. Hello, somebody. No topic is off limits. We will talk about healthcare, immigration, voting rights, policing and public safety, corporate greed, climate change, reparations and restitution. It is time to go there. The stakes are too high for us to be silent any longer. You will notice that the majority of our panel are evangelicals of color. That is because one in three American evangelicals is a person of color. And evangelicalism is a stream of the church rooted in the context of protest and people of color. In our American context, the Second Great Awakening was catalyzed by the protest of people of African descent who tried to pray at the altar with their their white brothers and sisters in 1787. Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and James Fortin led Black congregants as they walked out of St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia and eventually formed Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church and the Black stream of congregations within the Episcopal Church. That religious revolt catalyzed the religious movement in America responsible for the birth of Charles Finney's altar call where sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement were on or near the altar, depending on who you talk to. So I often say, if you want an unadulterated look at the truest form of American evangelicalism, you must look to the Black church. 
For centuries now, people of color have read the same text as our white evangelical brothers and sisters, and where our white brothers and sisters have extricated brown, colonized, indigenous Jesus from his story and the story of his peoples, people of color have read him in the context of his story. We relate to him and his people on a visceral level. Our history is similar to their history. Our present is similar to Jesus's present in the New Testament, and that impacts our politics. Now, a word about politics before we begin. Politics is not partisanship. Politics is simply the conversations that we have with each other about how the polis will live together and the decisions that we make given that conversation that we've just had. Politics is not supposed to be partisan. In fact, our original founding president told us that if it ever gets to be too partisan, we will no longer be able to govern. So we are going to have that conversation today because it is time. To help us engage in this critical conversation, we have five powerful evangelical voices. Charles Robinson, who you see on your on your screen, is from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. He works with the Red Road, a nonprofit organization that shares the love of Jesus with Native people in a culturally relevant and biblically sound way. Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra is Assistant Professor of Integral Mission and Transformational Development in the School of Intercultural Studies and Centro Latino at Fuller Seminary. Reverend Justin Ador is the lead pastor of Redeemer East Harlem Church in New York City. Kyle J. Howard is a theologian and trauma-informed soul care provider. And finally, Andrea Lucado is white. <laughs> and we can all see that. And she's here because her story actually is very relevant to the conversation that we have before us today. Andrea's story is informative, and so we've asked her to join us. She is a journalist and an author, and she is based, I believe, in Texas. Is that right, Andrea? Yeah. Wonderful. So everyone, I want to start with a very simple question. I want to start by asking you, what's your testimony? We are all evangelical. We all have a testimony. How did you come to Jesus? And tell us, the story of the first time that you heard that following Jesus meant that you would have to join a particular party, political party. Yeah, I'll start out. I came to know Jesus through the Young Life Ministry when I was growing up in Texas. The, the key thing about that was it was very relational type ministry. Uh, guys who led it uh, really invested into my life and cared about me as a person. So it was all relational. And then at while at a camp up in Colorado, uh, I came to know, I, I prayed and, and asked this Jesus, hey, hey if, if this story is real, man, I feel like I, I want to do something, be a part of that, mm. to make other people feel the way I feel. So I'd say, and that was back in 1984. As far as uh, aligning with the political party after coming to know Jesus, personally, I don't ever recall somebody saying, now that you follow Jesus, you have to be Democrat or Republican. I've, I've never had that conversation with somebody. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much, Charles. Really appreciate that. Alexia. 
My grandparents came from Mexico and Russia, and they were both from the anti-church traditions in those countries. So I grew up with this image that if God existed, that he was just not on our side, that he was way away playing golf while we were suffering unjustly. And I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior in the Jesus movement of the 70s. So I'm the old woman on the skull. <laughs> and I think what really moved me, I was moved by the vision of the God who suffers with us. And then who's suffering brings us to victory. That I was, I grew up in a world where love and power were very separate. Mm -hmm. And the powerful people weren't loving and the loving people weren't powerful. And the story of the cross and resurrection was a story about love winning, love having ultimate power. And I just said, wow, if this has any chance of being true, I have to try it. You know, I was thinking hard about your question, Lisa, that I don't think anybody ever said directly to me ever mm. that, you know, you have to be a Republican or Democrat to be a Christian. But what they did say was that the only political issues that we need to be concerned about are abortion, homosexuality, and religious freedom. But I wish they meant something very narrow, right? They didn't mean the sanctuary movement. <laughs> they meant church's freedom to discriminate against homosexual people, for example. Whatever party would support that was, that was the party we should be part of. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, I guess it was an indirect message, but not never a direct message. That's helpful. Thank you so much, Lucia. How about you, Andrea? So I'm a pastor's kid, so I, I've always kind of known him or known of him. But I guess the moment that I really converted or accepted Christ would be at a Baptist vacation Bible school with a friend. I didn't actually grow up Baptist. I responded to an altar call when I was nine. It felt like a very real and personal moment at the time. Ironically, I remember at that BBS, we would pledge allegiance to the American flag before we started. So it was an interesting interesting place. I do think my faith has evolved a lot. So I feel like there are moments that I've met a different type of Jesus, even in the last four years. But I also don't have, I don't feel like I was told you had to vote a certain party. I just remember knowing my parents at the time, I don't think this is always true for them, were voting Republican. And when your dad is your pastor, he's your dad, he's your spiritual leader. So I think I internalized that as, okay, we're Christians, we vote Republican. So that's it was kind of the general sense when I was growing up. That's helpful. Thank you. Kyle. Uh, yes. And so I guess I will deviate a little bit from what others have said, as uh, it was been made very clear to me that there was a political party that I had to vote for in order to be considered faithful. When I came to Christ, I came to faith as someone from a completely secular background. I didn't grow up in the faith, grew up, again, very secular background. I had a uh, an experience at the age of 18 as I, again, uh, my first semester of college. It was somewhat of a, I guess it was somewhat of a radical conversion experience, but it was kind of built upon by months of asking questions. I was one of those people who believed enough about God to hate him, but not actually someone who in any ways... I, you know, I thought I was going to hell. I was okay going to hell. I just didn't want anything to do with God. And a lot of that had to deal with some issues that I was struggling with personally. But long story short, I had a radical conversion experience into the black church. It was a black uh, college campus ministry. And within the black church, that wasn't the reality. Politics wasn't really ever talked. And it was kind of understood that we all believed in advocating for policies that uh, advanced the black community. 
It wasn't until I started reading heavy theology, reading uh, as a, someone who was very much drawn to history, started reading church history, Protestant Reformation, ultimately Calvinism, and then found myself within Reformed Evangelicalism. I left the Black church and began leaning more towards the Evangelical Southern Baptist churches, which I was w- welcomed with open arms only to then begin the process of seeking to assimilate me into the idea of um, that I had to vote Republican. And once I entered into that space, which I had been in for about the past 15 years, it was around the same time of, of Obama, for example, when his first term. And it was very clear to me that I could not like this man, that if I in any way, shape or form communicated any kind of appreciation for Obama, then I was unfaithful. He was to be hated. And uh, Republicanism was the most faithful expression of, of how Christians should engage politics. Wow. Thank you so much, Kyle. Justin. Yeah, so uh, I too grew up in a pastor's home. I was uh, actually, I'm a fifth generation pastor. Uh, I always joke it's kind of the family business that I got into. Uh, it was a conservative Pentecostal church. And so I, you know, there's never been a time when I haven't understood the, the core tenets of the gospel. I think I prayed the sinner's prayer before someone told me. Of course, it's been a lifelong journey of understanding and trying to plumb the, the endless depths of truth on the gospel and what that looks like in practical life. And so, yeah, it's been a journey for me. As far as the the Republican thing, it was, again, I think like everybody else, I never heard that explicitly, but I didn't know for way too long, I didn't know a Christian who was a Democrat. And then I also remember pastor saying from the pulpit, it's like seared in my memory, one particular election cycle, the pastor said, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I can tell you to vote for righteousness. And we know who the righteous candidate is. Okay, there you go. Yeah, the very message was uh, to vote for the Republican candidate at the time. So, uh, so I think that would be my experience with it. Yeah. Okay, so Charles, Charles, as a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, your people were removed from your original homelands in Mississippi and Alabama, forced to walk to Oklahoma on the Choctaw's Trail of Tears. Um, as a southeastern nation, your people had 500 years of contact with European. Christian human hierarchy and theft and exploitation of the land. So my question for you is, as a Choctaw man who follows Jesus on the Red Road, are there parallels that you see between the politics of the white church today and the politics of the white church in the days of the Choctaw removal? That's a great question. I would say that, well, first of all, I, my immediate response is, what is a white church? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it is it a skin color or is it a mindset? Okay, now so, you know because what we had back then. Go on. Really had the church back then. I, I'm I'm sure within the African or slave communities and stuff, there may have been black churches, but but we didn't have all these different colored churches. If you will. It was all white. Basically, it was the primary the the Presbyterians who came and as missionaries into the Choctaw country down in Mississippi and were part of that removal. And, and really their, their mindset at that time was about control, about power, about taking over our land. And also hopefully we would, you know, to save us evil savages and to, that we would someday find ourselves at, at some level of heaven, I'm certain. So that's what we encountered back then. Fast forward to today, I think the church, whether white, black, Asian, native, whatever it might be, I think it still has a lot of those same struggles as people 
wanting control, they're wanting power, they're wanting to control our, our cultures still, mm-hmm. right? So what we, and when the problem comes in, when we take a cultural preference and turn it into a biblical standard, mm-hmm. and that's what the church has done primarily, I know in indigenous communities, because we don't worship like them, then, uh, then we must be wrong because they can't be mistaken, right? Because our ways of worshiping may be different. But I think there's a lot of similarities in how it was in 1830 and 2020. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. Kyle, this week the Washington Post published a piece about Robert Jones's new book, White Too Long. The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Jones was raised Southern Baptist. You recently stepped away from the Southern Baptist Church. And so I wondered, what did you see about the intersection between evangelicalism, politics, and the Southern Baptist movement that we have to understand as we enter this moment today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so um, for the past 16 years or so, I've been within uh, Southern Baptist churches, specifically uh, white Southern Baptist churches. And even more than that, I my family moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I began pursuing degrees at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have two degrees from there, and I have just a few classes shy of finishing an advanced MDiv in historical theology there. And so uh, as it relates to Southern Baptist, I've been in the seminaries, I've been in the churches, and what was clear to me in both spaces was on one hand, you had a, uh, a evangelical theology of repentance, of turning away from sin, of ownership of sin, and even pursuing restitution when necessary. But then when it came to the actual practical outworkings of that, there was no repentance in relation to the Southern Baptist Convention's history in complicity and enabling of white supremacy and enslavement of African peoples. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, slave master theologians were still championed and praised um, on seminary campuses. 
Anytime I wanted to go to the bookstore, there would be slave masters plastered on the mugs or on T-shirts. And of course, the, the buildings were still named after slave masters. Yeah. And so I didn't. And then, of course, in classrooms, when the uh, black church was talked about, it was demeaned. And then white slave master theology was still exalted within the classroom. Then comes my work as a uh, counselor where my wife and I did not only experience racial trauma and spiritual abuse within evangelical Southern Baptist churches, but as a counselor whose trauma informed, I began getting more and more counselees of color who would come and share with me their own experience of racialized trauma and spiritual trauma and abuse within Southern Baptist evangelical churches. And then finally, being in that space, being a minority in that space, there often is a kind of dynamic of people wanting to test you to see whether or not you're the kind of minority that can be ways up in the ranks, more or less. And the more that I got to see behind the veil in regards to the Mm -hmm. the years of the Southern Baptist machine and how things moved and operated, the more it became clear to me that the only way in which I could move up, at least from my own personal perspective, is if I lost some of myself and if I compromised who I was as well as my ethnic identity. And in doing that, I would be compromising who God made me to be and how God made me to serve. And so I decided the best thing for my family was to step out of that uh, relationship with Southern Baptist uh, tradition and churches. So Kyle, I know, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when you said there is no tradition of repentance was, well, what about that confession back in 1995? Like they actually did confess their sin against people of African descent, but it struck me that it was confession, not necessarily repentance. So what's the difference there? Yeah. So when you think about repentance and the main text, even in this, it is a little bit ironic when you think about, again, even a seminary, which teaches future pastors how to shepherd people, that repentance should be a highlight or emphasis there. But repentance is when you, and I think about a passage like in Ephesians 4, where it talks about putting off something that's unrighteous and not just ceasing to do it, but rather put on something righteous in its place, let the thief mm-hmm. no longer steal. But let him now work honestly with his hands so that he can give to those in need. So just don't, don't just stop stealing, but you need to start giving back to people. Generosity is a, is a mark of repentance, not just simply yeah. working now. Uh, let the liar no longer lie, but let him become a truth teller. Come on now. And so again, within repentance, you have not just to be don't lie anymore, but now you must speak truth. And so when we think about repentance within the Southern Baptist Convention specifically, when the Southern Baptist Convention was literally formed because of its defense of slavery, repentance does not just simply look like naming your sin. And I think we can still question whether they have truly and genuinely named the level of sin that has happened, the the fact that the entire wealth of the Southern Baptist Convention is built on the, the bodies of Black Africans, not just simply that they enslaved them, but they're now drenched in the wealth of that bondage, and, and which came with many other things, rape, molestation, pillaging, theft, and all these other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Repentance would look like not only confessing genuinely in regards to all the ways in which you've wronged, but it would also include restitution, and it would also include, again, putting off and putting on. So if you oppressed Black people, then repentance looks like now elevating, exalting Black people. And the baseline way that we could do that is through looking at leadership dynamics. Why, if you oppressed Black people, why shouldn't repentance be now seeking to elevate them in positions of leadership and granting power to African Americans to actually be an influencing denomination? And so when it comes to biblical repentance, 
there has not been that. And that's not, I don't even think that's even an opinion. I mean, just based upon the word of God, which we all say we adhere to, it doesn't meet the baseline requirements of what biblical repentance is. Instead, we constantly have opposition. Anyone who calls for it is called a cultural Marxist. It's called a ethnic Gnostic. It's called a critical race theorist. Just names are just thrown out. Slander is happening. And there's no one in leadership that's standing up saying enough of that. Let's practice repentance. And so again, until we see, until the Southern Baptist Convention sees repentance, it just wasn't a place that I felt in good conscience, me as a, a descendant of slaves could actually continue working in. Thank you. Andrea, you wrote an article for the Washington Post that created a firestorm almost exactly one year ago. It was called How the Female Body Became the Scapegoat for White Evangelicals. Yes, people, we are going there. Yes, we are. The article focused on abortion. Yes, abortion. I promised no question would be off limits, so here we go. Andrea, can you share your story of how you had this process, your process of transformation, and how you were thinking about this issue of abortion and reproductive justice, reproductive rights? Yeah, haven't published much since then. That was an intense article to put out. Yeah, I think that I, you know, being pro-life, when I clearly identified as pro-life, which I would say I'm a little bit more on the for less abortions camp now than I would say I'm pro-life, but I really had no problem voting for Obama in 2008. That was an exciting thing for me. I was living overseas. I had kind of a new global perspective and and continued to be able to vote not based on that one issue. I was always looking at who was equipped, who cared about the social issues that I cared about. And I didn't really, I knew that some friends were guided by kind of that one issue, but I never was. And that was kind of okay until four, four years ago when I had friends and family vote for Trump in 2016 based on that one issue. And I started to really question, okay, is it this, or is there something kind of deeper at play? And so I kind of started thinking about and deconstructing my experience with the purity culture movement in the late 90s, early 2000s in the evangelical church and noticing kind of how much fault and and blame and responsibility was put on girls in that movement, on our bodies, covering them up. If my boyfriend and I stumbled, it, it was my fault. I should have, you know, done something to prevent that, not worn a certain thing. And and realizing that so much of that was put on, on the girls in that story. And then when I looked at the pro-life movement, you know, they weren't talking about reproductive justice. They weren't talking about the fact that what leads to unwanted pregnancies is, you know, not having access to healthcare or contraception, men habitually not wearing condoms, things that very simply would prevent unwanted pregnancies is not a part of that conversation. Instead, it's mm. all about making abortion illegal. And at the core of that is what the woman is doing with her body. She's getting the abortion. So I kind of made the connection. It just looks like the, the female body is some sort of scapegoat here. And, and I quote, I talk about a guy, Rene Girard, who's much more eloquent when talking about scapegoat theory and just the strength that that has had in ancient societies and today to hold people together. We rally around this one thing to hold ourselves together. 
And the interesting thing that Gerard said is Christ kind of ended, ended the need for that. He was the ultimate scapegoat whose innocence was known, who was able to speak from the cross. He ended this cycle of violence. We don't have to do that anymore to operate as a society, but I've seen the white evangelical church continue to operate in that. And so I started to kind of theorize, maybe this isn't so much about being pro-life, if this is the only thing that's guiding your vote. Maybe there's something deeper at play here. Maybe there's kind of a scapegoat mechanism happening. Mm. That's so deep. And I, I mean, for myself, I've often thought about this issue of abortion and how it rose through the religious right at the exact moment that the religious right lost the fight against the U.S. Um, in the case of Bob Jones University versus the USA. And Bob Jones University was trying to keep pure white space. So that purity culture thing, it actually connects there. And, and it was the same exact people who lost that Supreme Court fight in 1983, who that year turned around and said, hmm, abortion is now going to be our issue. And our main number one tactic will be overturning the Supreme Court, making it a conservative court, the very same place where they just lost Bob Jones. They lost the segregation fight. So I'm in the process of theorizing myself. And I want to ask everybody a quick question. Where were you when you first heard that abortion was an issue at all, a political issue at all? Like, were you in the context? What kind of church were you in when you heard that it's, this is a political issue we need to fight for, fight against? It would, for me, it would be when I entered a uh, Southern Baptist space within the Black church, it was seen as something of social care and an issue uh, dealing with caring for communities, caring for our society, advocating for those, for the poor, those kinds of things. It didn't get politicized until I entered evangelical Southern Baptist space. Thank you, Kyle. How about others? So I have a very different experience around this. Okay. So in the Hispanic community, I think I can say safely, I don't like to speak for all Hispanics, right? But in our community, we really see God as coming through children in a very mm -hmm. special way. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you have Nino Jesus as one of the ways that you really meet God. But it's just because we see kids that way, period. So I think that I was, you know, that the way that my community saw abortion was always as mm -hmm. a terrible tragedy. Like, like anybody will take that child, Miha. Like, you know, you have that child, you give it to anybody. And any of us will treasure that child as God present with us. So, but I think that I don't, I don't think I heard about it in a policy way. Because it wasn't really seen, like Andrea, when you talk about, you know, women being bad. Because they, it wasn't seen like, it was seen as a tragedy, right? Like, can we do something for that woman and child other than have that baby be? Dying, right? So, and I don't remember what year it was that I began hearing about it as policy, but I think I think I was involved with the Spanish-speaking congregation, and I think there was a there were other congregations in town that said we're all taking buses to go, and so that was sort of like, oh, we have to come because we have to stop abortion from happening, right? But that was not sort of where people went with it in the community I was in. It was more like, this is a terrible tragedy, and how can we stop it by helping the women involved? That's helpful. Thanks, Olivia. Um, How about others? Similarly, just always had grown up just with the experience of people viewing it as a, just a real tragedy. I grew up in the 80s and in the 90s, and it seems like in the 90s in particular, it got like fiercely political. And so I, I remember 
the general culture shift around around it getting politicized. But for the most part, I, I don't. I, it was definitely later in life. So this would have been moving from a Pentecostal world more into the evangelical world that I experienced it to be much more of a political thing in my more Pentecostal world. And there's a lot of reasons for this. It was just viewed largely as that tra- that same kind of tragedy. So uh, it was definitely within explicitly evangelical spaces. Thank you. I, I want to ask everybody, what scriptures now inform your positions on reproductive health and reproductive justice? Where do you go to in scripture? You know, I look in Isaiah where it talks about God forming us in our mother's wombs. And, and, and the idea that God made us is we have certain value, right? Uh, so with our native people, uh, the issue of, of abortion was never an issue until the assimilation process, until we began to get involved in, and the government began to mandate stuff and, and sterilize our native women. And so you might want to call that pre-pregnancy abortion because we, they never had the chance to, to even have children after that. And so when they began to, to take away our children, even before they were born, um, that became an issue. I remember back in the early 80s when they were bombing and protesting abortion clinics the next thing you know, on TV, during election time, everybody started stating their their stance on, this is back in Texas and Oklahoma, making public their stance on abortion. Yes, right. And it's funny because it, that also happened in the African-American community. And that's where we get the terminology, reproductive justice, because from a Black perspective, it's really about our right, actually, to bear life and basically be the stewards of our own bodies, not having white men determine what we do with our bodies. That's because that's the way it was for 256 years in, in the context of enslavement. Thank you so much, Charles. I never made that connection before. For me, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one specific text. Mm-hmm. What I would say is it's more of a theme. And the theme is with how Jesus relates to women in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. He never puts their circumstances or actions over the preciousness of their hearts and the preciousness of who they are. No matter what circumstance a woman is in, no matter what dynamics or sin or anything else, Jesus always sees them as precious image bearers. And he always relates to them as precious sisters. And so when it comes to something like abortion, it's that theme that kind of propels me to say, what we should primarily be focused on is how do we care for women? How do we love? How do we uplift? How do we exalt the dignity and the humanity uh, of women made in the image of God? So it's more that theme than a specific biblical text. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, Alexia, I want to move to the issue of immigration. 
You have been deeply involved in the immigration reform movement for decades. How have you seen immigration policy shift under the present administration? And how are you guided by scripture when considering what our immigration policy could be? So it's funny because I actually want to link the last topic with this topic. Yes. Because when you ask that question, the, the scripture that came up for me was Psalm 139, which talks about how we're all fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Mm -hmm. And what I think about when I think about that scripture is not just the question of abortion, but then how do we treat people throughout their lives as if they are fearfully and wonderfully made? Like how do we treat children not putting them in cages, right? Who are fearfully and wonderfully made, mm -hmm. right? Like how do we take that seriously in all ways that we deal with each other? So I've been working, like you said, with our immigration system and with immigrant ministry for 40 years. So I've seen it go through a lot of changes. It's a horribly broken system, ineffective, illogical, unjust, and inhumane. But since this administration came in, I have never in my life seen through it, Democratic and Republican administrations, I have never seen anything like this. There have been over 200, not laws, executive orders and regulations passed, all of them restrictive, all of them. And many of them, I don't have any in the word for it, but vicious. Like most people know about the children in cages, right? And the separation of families, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's just one example. I mean, another example would be with our asylum laws, which are the same as refugee laws, essentially. Refugee just has to do with where people are coming from. Guatemala is a country where what's going on there is so terrible in terms of human rights violations that we have consistently given asylum to people coming from Guatemala. This administration declared Guatemala a safe third country so that people coming from El Salvador who would have to come through Guatemala, but that people who had come through, they made a new regulation that you have to have asked for asylum in every country that you came through on the way to come to the United States or the, and the United States can't grant you asylum if you haven't. So the, they declared all these countries safe third countries even though they're countries where we regularly give people asylum who are running from these countries, they declare them safe third countries for the sake of not having to consider people's asylum cases. So, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty is weeping at some of the viciousness of these policies. And I feel like, you know, there are 92 scriptures that specifically talk about hospitality to the stranger, 92, in comparison to four that may talk about homosexuality. So we're talking about a huge difference here in terms of importance to God's heart. But even beyond that, I think about the compassion of Christ. That compassion is an English word or a Spanish word consisting of two Latin words, com and pasio, and com is with and pasio is feel or suffer is that we have to, if Jesus looks at us and suffers with us, and if we feel Jesus's compassion, we have to look at other people and suffer with them mm -hmm. and take their suffering seriously, right? Like do something about their suffering. I'm pretty moderate with regard to immigration reform policies. I don't think we can't have borders, but I think we have to have an immigration policy that is logical, just, and humane. And what this administration has done is nothing short of vicious. And some of what our churches have done that is blind, uh, not even blind support. Some of it is blind support, but some of it is just deprioritization of immigrants as human beings and as our brothers and sisters, as members of our families. So like, why don't we who are 
in Hispanic evangelicals. Why don't what's happening to our families matter to you? If we're brothers and sisters, why don't you see us as fearfully and wonderfully made? And what rips apart our family should affect you. You should care. Like that's really painful. You know, these are complex issues about where we draw the line, but there's not even a conversation here. There's just nothing in the way of care than so many people. And many evangelical churches and Pentecostal churches are right there working on this issue. So I'm certainly not painting everybody with that brush. But, you know, I am saying there are so many of my brothers and sisters as evangelicals, white evangelicals who just aren't paying attention, who, who are not treating us as members of the same body. Thank you. Justin, you are based in East Harlem, New York City. We were all horrified by the images of body bags being loaded into the backs of semi-truck coolers for storage during the height of the COVID crisis. Your neighborhood and the South Bronx, just across the river, were hit particularly hard. I wondered, what have you learned about environmental racism and the health of your own community in New York City through the COVID crisis? And also, have you reflected on this experience in scripture? And if so, share it with us. Yeah, I mean, it's been, of course, we're still in the middle of this, but in the worst of it, what a heartbreaking, it was just, it was such a traumatic season for our city. And I think one of the things that, that I've reflected deeply on is, you know, the history of injustice and racism and the, the church's complicity with it. Uh, it has consequences. And lest one assume that we are truly post-racial and we have worked out these issues. I mean, a crisis like COVID-19 makes very plain uh, how much that has not been the case. Uh, and the reason being, one of the things that has been the reality for us is so East Harlem, South Bronx, and other historically poor marginalized communities were just ravaged by this thing. And I think probably the one of the, the starkest examples, if anybody's familiar with, with New York, which I know, Lisa, you, you would be familiar with this, but there's uh, the 96th Street line separates East Harlem and the Upper East Side. Quickly, to give you a picture of, of the differences that happened because of one street. I have a friend who calls it the modern-day apartheid. South of 96th Street, on the south side of the street, the median income of that neighborhood is about 120000 a year, predominantly white. You cross the street, the other side of the street, the median income then shifts to $33,000 a year, and it is predominantly black and brown, right? It is a drastic shift. The Upper East Side had one of the lowest rates of infection and deaths in the city. East Harlem had one of the highest. The Upper East Side had a 40% decrease in residential population during COVID. People just got out. Of course, neighborhoods like East Harlem, people don't have that option because of the resources. And so it just, it did ravage the community. And so I don't mean to set that up as a way of, I don't know, pitting those two neighborhoods against each other, but it, it the development of neighborhoods, the way that they are, are currently situated, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's had consequences. There was a councilwoman that said something like, how did she put it? She, um, we're in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And that's very much been the, the reality of what we've experienced with COVID. And then to, to your question about passages that I've been reflecting on, mm-hmm. you know, one of, the, one of the more popular passages within evangelicalism, especially as it relates to the urbanization of the world, has been you know, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which you've been called. And that's been used as a call to call Christians to root themselves in cities and to love and serve and care for the cities. And I think that's an absolutely good and right call to make of people. Uh, 
tension that I've always had with Jeremiah 29 being used in that way is to whom God is speaking in that passage. He is speaking to an exiled people who can't leave. Like they are, they are stuck in exile and he calls them to do this and to, to seek the peace and prosperity. And I, one of the things that, that challenges me is that, especially within evangelicalism, Jeremiah 29 was used as a way to call people into the city to love and serve and care for the city. But then we hit COVID-19 and it became that the crisis caused people to then just leave. It was almost like the, the city stopped giving me what I came to get from it. And so because it's now problematic for me to be here, I need to, I need to bounce again. And that has just had a lot of racial implications. It just, it has. <laughs> and so it's been a tension. It's been a very real tension that we're still trying to process through. And we're obviously still in the middle of that crisis. But the best thing that we've known how to do is to truly take on that Jeremiah 29. How do we seek the peace and prosperity of those who are, they don't have the option to leave. They are stuck here and they're even struggling to even just meet the most basic provisional needs for their for themselves. So how do we rally around that in the midst of this crisis? It's been difficult, but we shall press on. I'm aware that Bronx Health Reach did a, a study a while back, maybe a decade ago actually, about the two healthcare systems at work at play in New York City. That there was a healthcare system for the poor and a healthcare system for the rich. And that is just the reality. And it also broke down according to race. Black and brown people were largely in the healthcare system for the poor, and white folk were largely in the healthcare system for the rich. And the thing that strikes me is also how environmental racism played a role in the COVID crisis in New York City. And you can also see it around the country. But because of the housing that you talked about, because of the reality that above 96th Street, you have a higher density of people. They are poorer. And their neighborhood back in the 80s was zoned for fast food, not supermarkets. So you have a high density or used to have a high density of fast food. So folks have higher rates of diabetes and heart disease and, and all the rest. And so so then when people come into the hospital already with these comorbidities, they're much more likely to die. So it all, it all piles on itself. I think you, I never in my whole life, even when I was in New York City, heard the dichotomy between this, that one block, that one street, 96th Street. So thank you for that. Mm. Everybody, I want to ask you as we move into the last movement of our time, I am sure, positive, that there are representatives of both campaigns who are watching this broadcast right now. And I want to ask you to paint the picture for them of the kind of politics, the kind of way that you want as an evangelical, as an evangelical of color, what do you see? What do you want for our nation and the way that we live together in the world? Paint the picture for us. I'll just throw it in right away. Psalm 72. Every politician who claims Christ needs to read Psalm 72. Okay. Because Psalm 72 is a prayer for the king. And it's a prayer for a king to be a king that obeys God in all areas of his life. And what it tells the king to do, it talks about the needy and the poor five times during the this special particular attention to the needy and the poor and their well-being. And then the last two lines talk about who this king is. And it says that, that he prays that he would treat every life as precious and that he would protect people from oppression and violence. I want our political system to treat every life as precious. 
and to protect people from oppression and violence. And we can then argue about different strategies, but, but that's what I think that we need to be about as a country. Amen. Thank you so much. You cannot expect unquestioned loyalty solely because of historic connections that uh, certain types of Christians may have had particular political parties. Literally pitting people against each other is creating an environment where we are becoming the worst versions of ourselves. It is working against you to solely rally your base without attempting to understand and properly engage those who would have otherwise disagreed with you. We're becoming the worst versions of ourselves as a result of it. And so I would just call on all elected officials and those particularly entering races right now, you don't have our loyalty because of some kind of historic connection that we've had. You need to you need to woo us and you need to prove that you care about the concerns of our communities, even if those might not be necessarily the concerns that you have in, in your own personal politics. Thank you. Kyle, I think I see the spirit over your head. <laughs> uh, what I would say is that I think that for many people, especially people that are kind of on the ground level dealing with issues that we're seeing even in the news right now from protests and, and all those kinds of things. So dealing with people with real racial trauma, dealing with people with real other forms of trauma, all those things. Many of us are exhausted with the political posturing and the pursuit after power. For many Republicans, they have chosen to side and align themselves with white nationalism and to support aspects of white supremacy in a pursuit for political power. And so they've weaponized faith in that process. When it comes to the Democrat Party, they in, in leveraging power, they have sought to, even as they claim to be the party of diversity, still seek to elevate white men over and against women and minorities. And so even when it comes to this recent election that we have right now, one of the first things that I lamented was seeing how much, how little many Democrats are willing to put their money where their mouth was when it came to supporting minority candidates or women candidates. And so what I would say is that I think that there needs to be a focus on many ways redistributing power and being intentional with how that's pursued. Both Republicans and Democrats need to understand that the power that is given to them through the electorate is power to serve, is power to uh, practice self-denial, not self-interest, but rather serve the communities that elected them. And I think that we've lost that. And on both sides of the aisle, there's political posturing and pursuits of power that leave the marginalized marginalized. Think of the people who you're, you're running against. And think of the, the, the people that that you have the hardest time with, that maybe your greatest enemy, or the or whose your policies will affect the greatest. Think of those people, and go sit down with them. No cameras, no journalists, nobody to report what's being. Just sit down and get to know people. See people, the politicians, every one of them, they all come through Indian country throughout the year during election year for their photo ops. They really don't give a crap about our native people. We're not a voting block in most instances, so they're not they're not catering to get our votes, right? But if you reach out to people that are not like you, spend time with them, get to know them. I've asked friends who that are opposed to immigration and all these issues, right? I say, how many how many undocumented people have you had lunch with that are here in in, in Tennessee where I live now? And every single one of them said, I don't know anybody personally who's living here undocumented. I said, well, that's the problem. you got to get to know people. When you get to know people, they become more than just a vote for you. They become a real person. And that's the way, that's what Jesus did, man. Jesus came to us and said, hey, just go serve my people. Feed the hungry people. Take care of the people. That's, that's what we're asking of these folks. 
Thank you. So the question here is, evangelicals have been able to be manipulated by one party for the past 40 years. Because in all that time, we've never actually talked about the issues used as wedge issues that drive us apart. We don't have the conversations. Our inaction has allowed cancer to take over this part of the body of Christ, this evangelical part of the body of Christ. It allowed whole denominations to be born to protect slavery and Jim Crow. Hello, right? Evangelical pastors and faith leaders across the country right now are watching this broadcast. So to anyone who would like to answer in our last um, two minutes, what do you think needs to change in the way that evangelicals disciple the to ensure that our politics are being guided by the principles of our faith and our faith isn't being guided by our politics? I think it is extremely important that other evangelicals understand that right now um, there is a rise of a false religion within your mix called Christian nationalism. It's God is not Christ, but it's God is this nation. And it is a religion of idolatry that is causing many of you to sacrifice your brother and sisters on the altar of power and in political expediency. You must understand that the gospel is about the cosmic reconciliation and reunification of all things under Christ. And what that means is that you are not a citizen of this world, but you're a citizen in the kingdom of God. And your priority is to advance human flourishing and light in this world. And if you sacrifice that for political expediency or for social power, you're going to lose all of that as well as your own faith family and also your faith. And so stay fast and, and hold fast to the reality that this kingdom is not your word, but you are from another word and push forth with light rather than darkness. Thank you. Maybe add to that, you know, as Christians, we really do have a greater calling, which is ultimately to Christ than in political party. Of course, that's kind of a cliche idea right now. But that statement on its own really doesn't mean anything unless we kind of get into the, the weeds of it. And for me, what that is, is that. It is more important that we maintain our Christian witness and the honor of Christ in the way that we vote. And that might mean different things to progressives and conservatives, but the way that we vote too often dishonors Christ and undermines the witness and credibility of the church. There are alternatives than being co-opted by particular political parties. Again, that is a word that both progressives and conservatives need to hear. And so whatever that might look like, honoring Christ and Continuing to be a proper witness in the world means more than your political party winning. It really does. And so this whole like lesser of two evils argument, I think is absolute nonsense as a result of that. I want to say that there's no perfect political party, that I don't know why we think there would be, that I think that at every juncture, we have to decide who is more reflective, the deepest values of our faith. There's not going to be anybody that's perfectly reflective. But when we read Psalm 72, who reminds us of more of Psalm 72 than someone else? And that's a very personal decision, but we're not even asking the question most of the time, right? So we need to ask that question, and then we need to, it's a testimony for us to live according to the answer. Amen. I think when it comes to this discipleship question in the evangelical church, I think I 
worshipped and heard about a white Jesus for a long time. And I think the Jesus that I'm coming to know now is much more radical, is a Palestinian Jewish man who was oppressed and a part of a minority group under Roman rule. And I think that the context of Christ and the way that you teach him and who he was is crucial. He's not someone who just said, ask me into your heart have some quiet times until you go to heaven. He's someone who really made a change where he was and his love was sacrificial. And I think that if that's the Jesus that we teach, especially in white evangelical spaces, that would be a game changer for the way people view politics, for the way people view how change should be done in our country. Thank you. Thank you so much for fighting to get that in because that was that was awesome. <laughs> and Charles, you get the last word, which is very appropriate, friend. You know, I, I man, manipulation of the gospel and Christians that come from both sides of the aisle, and not a, and like those have said, it's uh, following Jesus is not a political party. It's about how you live in your life, right? It's about how you how you treating people. You know, when we claim to, and the the Declaration of Independence claims to that all men are created equal. Well, back then we know what all men really meant. It was white landowning males. That's what it meant. That's so right. today. If we really want to, to change what the word all means, man, we've got to love people that don't look like us. We've got to reach out to people that don't vote like us. We've got to be a part of people's lives. You know, we have a, a motto of another company we have. It's called Discover Common Ground. And we've just got to reach out and find common ground with other people. And that's where we're going to that's where we're going to make a difference when you, you grow in community with people that are not like yourself. So thank you, Lisa, for this opportunity to be a part of this today. Thank you. And thank you to all of our panelists for bringing your whole selves and all of your internet <laughs> to helping to break open these conversations within the evangelical church today. And thank you to our partners, the Voices Project, Global Immersion Project, Evangelicals for Justice, and Evangelicals for Social Action. And finally, thank you for showing up today, everyone who is watching on Facebook Live. Please share the principles of our faith that matter to you when determining how you think we should be living together. Let's, let's hear from each other. Let's have and continue this conversation. And also, if you were inspired by these voices today, then would you please lift your voice? Lift your voice. Make your own video statement on Facebook about the kind of politics that you are looking for, the kind of way that we should be living together in the world. And also make sure you use the hashtag EvangelicalVote. Make sure you use that hashtag EvangelicalVote. And if you are so inspired, let us know. You can write to us at info at freedomroad.us info at freedomroad.us and let us know that you're interested in doing an op-ed in your local newspaper. We will help you with that. Let us know, let the world know what you want from the world as an evangelical, particularly an evangelical of color. So please follow Freedom Road on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Facebook and, and Instagram, it's Freedom Road Us, Freedom Road.us rather. And on Twitter, it is Freedom Road Us. So stay in the know. Look for more opportunities to walk together on Freedom Road and all of those different spaces. Now, without hesitation, do not pass go. Go and mail in your vote. Thank you, everyone. God bless you. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. 
Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., and actually wherever our guests are in the world in this COVID crisis. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work on our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, and we promise we really won't. We will not fill your inbox. (laughs) We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.